Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. presented by Dr. Marwa Koheji. Dr. Koheji is currently a research fellow in the Humanities Research Fellowship Program here at NYU Abu Dhabi. She holds a PhD degree in Cultural Anthropology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Koheji is preparing a book manuscript that draws on her research entitled Cooling the Arab Gulf, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything. Beyond academia, she published her research in journals aimed at broader audiences. More recently, she was a participant in Bahrain's National Pavilion at the Venice Biennale of Architecture, which centered on the theme of cooling and sustainability. Along with her academic research, Dr. Koheji has a professional background in the heritage industry working with the Bahrain Authority for Culture and Antiquities on different national and world heritage projects. Our moderator for today's event is engineer Amr Adel Galal, who is the president of the Ashri Falcon chapter in the UAE and the senior regional sales manager with 18 years of experience in the Middle East region. Engineer Amr is passionate about advancing the HVAC and our industry in the Middle East and is committed to serving the Ashri Falcon chapter to the best of his ability. He looks forward to working with the chapter's members to promote sustainable building design and operation and to provide them with the resources and support they need to succeed. Engineer Amr has a demonstrated history of working with multinational organizations and is skilled in product management, business development, sales, marketing, and business planning. He holds an MBA from the University of Wolverhampton, UK in 2019, and an executive diploma in international business management from Pearson Institute, also UK 2018. He also has a bachelor's degree in electrical power and machines engineering from Helwan University, Egypt. Thanks again for joining us tonight and enjoy the event. Thank you, Alex, for the introduction. I'd like to thank the Institute for their invitation and the Humanities Fellowship for their support. Special thanks also goes to Engineer Amr, who so generously is offering his time to moderate the Q&A of the talk. And thank you all for being here. I'm happy to share with you this evening part of my research, which is a historical and a cultural study of air conditioning in the Gulf, that I entitled Cooling the Arab Gulf, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything. 
And I'd like to start with a quote by an Englishman who was interviewed in 1938 about living and working in Awali. And Awali is an oil town that was built in Bahrain in the 1930s. When asked about his life, he responded, and I quote here, the heat is bad, but I'm living like an English millionaire. I had to come to an Arab desert to get air conditioning, plenty of ice, and a tiled bathroom. End quote. This statement offers a glimpse into air conditioning's early beginning in the Gulf, a story that started in the Bahraini oil fields in the 1930s, where air conditioning provided comfort and luxury to Awali's European and American residents. But the story of cooling does not end there. Soon after its initial adoption in Awali, this technology slowly began to encroach onto everyday life in Bahrain and elsewhere in the Gulf, becoming, over the following decades, a fixture of the Gulf's urban landscape. And its significance was not only that it um, created new sensory experiences, which is the feel of cooler and drier air, but that in so doing it also changed life as people knew it. In a remarkably short period of time, air conditioning reshaped not only houses and cities, but also practices of daily life, social relations, and even bodies. Today, one can argue that there is no society that's more air-conditioned than in the Gulf, where even the outdoor is being increasingly air-conditioned. These are pictures of different locations in the Gulf that features outdoor cooling, so a stadium in Qatar, and then there is the open market or the souk in Bahrain. At the top, it's the model of an air-conditioned city that was proposed in Dubai um, in 2014, I believe. So when I started this research, I came into it with a very simple question. As a Bahraini myself, I grew up not knowing life without air conditioning. So I wanted to take this technology that has become so familiar and make it strange again, or see it in new eyes, so to speak. And so I wanted to ask, how did this technology, or why did air conditioning move to the Gulf to begin with? How did it become normalized? And how did it change everyday life in the region? So rather than start with the assumption or the idea that air conditioning is necessary simply because the Gulf's climate is hot, I wanted instead to inquire about the social and historical factors that established air conditioning as a normal and necessary object of life. By asking this question, my purpose is not simply to complicate our understanding of the spread of air conditioning in the Gulf, but also to address an urgent question of how we can deliver more sustainable ways of cooling. Particularly when we consider that in Gulf cities, air conditioning takes up an average 60% of the energy consumption of electricity. In addition, the refrigerants that are used in air conditioning, some of them have a very high global warming potential. It also doesn't escape us that in light of global warming, the region is likely to, con to continue experiencing rising temperatures, which altogether make the question of how we became so reliant on this technology and how we can challenge this reliance even more pressing. In this talk, I focus on Bahrain as a case study to tell a story of air conditioning in the Gulf, given that Bahrain is the first place in the region to witness the operation of mechanical cooling. And I thought that instead of focusing in details on one aspect of the research, maybe we have different parts to give a general overview with the hope of provoking conversations about the path forward, particularly as we gear up to COP28 at the end of the month. So can we imagine a life less reliant on air conditioning in the Gulf, and if so, how? Probing this question necessitates revisiting the history of air conditioning in the Gulf to understand the trajectory that set us on this path to begin with. What I argue is that air the use of air conditioning was not inevitable, but rather part of a larger project of British colonial intervention. 
This project involves the introduction of new architectural, urban, and engineering practices that to this day have been locking the region into an unsustainable reliance on this technology. Now, as I mentioned, Awali is the first place in the Gulf to use air conditioning. Built by the Bahrain British Petroleum Company in 1934, it was set near Jabal al-Dukhan where oil was first discovered and exploited in the peninsula. To a large extent, Awali reflected the promise of oil-driven modernization in the region, particularly as it featured new technological systems and infrastructures. And these included not only air-conditioned offices and houses, but also the first modern sewage system uh, in the region. And as the town continued to go expansion in the 1950s, it also has what is arguably the first configuration of district cooling um, in the world. These are photos, contemporary photos of the historic cooling system which still operates today. And district cooling, just a quick um, uh, uh, contextualization, district cooling is a system when you supply filled water through underground pipes to multiple buildings for the purpose of cooling. Now, recently, this technology has become very popular in the Gulf, but the, earlier, the, uh, the earliest technical configuration of this system is arguably in Awali al-Bahrain in the 1950s, which is a site that's currently being nominated to be inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List. Appreciating the role of Hawali in introducing air conditioning in Bahrain requires that we also place its development in a context of British modernization efforts. With the discovery of oil renewing British interest in the region, one way that the British were able to maintain their presence is by marshalling the benefits of oil to build new technological infrastructures. So they built air-conditioned systems, ne water networks, sewage systems, new buildings. These infrastructures allowed the British to justify their intervention through claims of technical superiority. And otherwise, in other words, by saying that we are here to bring the benefits of civilization and progress to colonized uh, population. And we can see this happening clearly in the, in the first part of the, of the 20th century as the British turned Bahrain into a linchpin of colonial modernization policies in the region. This is a picture of Charles Belgrave, who played a major role in urban and modernization reforms in Bahrain during his tenure from 1926 until 1957 when he left the country. These modernization initiatives played a key role in reshaping Bahrain's built environment towards a reliance on air conditioning. And that happened in multiple ways. For one thing, soon after air conditioning was used in Awali, Belgrave introduced a scheme of air conditioning to the electrical departments in Bahrain for the purpose of gradually uh, air-conditioned air buildings. So what happened in 1938, uh, 22 air conditioners were installed in Manama in public and also private buildings that at the time primarily belonged to British residents and members of the local elite. In 1914-1941, this number was raised to 50. In 1945, we also witnessed the installation of new generators for the purpose of cooling in the city of Muharraq. So there was a project of air conditioning that was taking place through the electrical department. And this project involved not only British colonial administrators like Belgrave, but it also included Bahraini traders who played an important role in the spread of air conditioning. Now, with the collapse of the pearling industry and the emergence of an oil sector in, the, and in Bahrain in the 30s, a lot of the Bahraini pearl traders reoriented their trade from pearls to the construction, retail, and service sectors. So they started building air-conditioned hotels and cinemas in Bahrain as early as 1938. They also acted as exclusive agents of different brands of air conditioning. These are pictures of advertisement that started to circulate among the Bahraini public through 
um, a local press that was emerging in the early 1950s. But the success of air conditioning also required new ways of building and urban planning that would make air conditioning necessary. And this is simply because before air conditioning, people really didn't need this technology. But they were able to survive and thrive in its climate, primarily by relying on centuries-old architectural strategies for cooling. So they built houses with materials that were selected from the environment for their ability to resist the heat, such as coral stone that was fetched from the sea, mud, and also plaster that was made from limestone and was known to, to be able to really resist the heat. In addition, they adopted building designs that maximized shade, ventilation, and air movement. Buildings, for example, were arranged along long, narrow alleyways to minimize the space exposed to the sun, which is a pattern that archaeological evidence suggests you know, has a very ancient history. Houses were also built around an open courtyard that provided shaded areas during the day and promoted air circulation. So the, the hot air that would gather on the courtyard, because the hot air is, is lighter, it would rise, pulling with it the air from the surrounding room in a constant movement of hot and cold air. So that was the, how the you know, houses were built in the back. It was, they were built inwards around an open inner courtyard. Some white-layer households also featured um, a wind tower, or what is known as a badgir, which is a technology that the Persians brought with them in the early 20th century, and which funnels the air even on a relatively still day. I don't know if there are any, if any of them left in, in the UAE. You could, if you just go and stand next to them, you can actually feel the air hitting you, uh, which feels very lovely, actually. Such architectural strategies were also accompanied by behavioral adaptations that are still part of living memory. In oral history interviews with Bahraini men and women, many recall the days where they used to sleep on the rooftop during the summer because they provided cooler spaces. Others remembered practices of seasonal migration. One woman, who's a native of Mahadaq, recounted, and I quote her here, in the summer, in the summer, I would move with my family near the coast, and the whole community would be there too, living in temporary barracks or palm front huts. I remember my mother would spend her time drying shrimp to prepare for winter. End quote. Beginning in the early 20th century, however, these architectural and behavioral adaptations were displaced as British administrators led by Belgrade introduced a new urban layout. For Belgrade's administrations, Bahrain Bahrain's vernacular architecture was a sign of cultural backwardness that needed to be modernized. And this logic is best captured in the title of an interview he gave um, with Life magazine in 1952, entitled He Stepped Forward to the Backward, in which he explains, and I quote him here, how in Manama, new buildings of shining white plasters have re replaced mud huddles and a crumbling mud town filled with noisy people who lived in incredible filth. End quote. And so again, this idea that we are bringing modernity and progress and civilization to the people of Bahrain. So during Belgrade's ten tenure, we witnessed a series of urban and architectural changes that were supposedly more modern, but that were ultimately maladaptive and did not suit the climate. Starting in the 1920s, a scheme of road widening was introduced, which did away with the shaded alleyways that characterized Bahraini towns. The British also instituted a ban on the, the Barastis, the palm front huts, in 1937. They also discouraged the use of coral stones, which they thought was unsanitary and unsightly. And instead, new building materials started to be introduced that, unlike the coral stones and the mud bricks, would actually absorb heat. So cement started to be incorporated 
in the built in Bahrain built uh, environment as early as 1928. This is a picture of a girls' school in, in Muharraq, and it's one of the earliest examples of uh, cement in, uh, incorporation in buildings. Most of the time, uh, at that time, it was mostly um, hybrid structures, so it would be coral stone plus cement blocks. With the emergence of the oil industry, asphalt, which is a product of oil, also started to take over road, storing heat in the ground and contributing to what meteorologist Leonard Myrick would term in 1969 as an urban, an urban heat island effect. Equally significant, let's see. Yeah, this is a picture that I found in a personal archive. I'm not really sure what is the exact date of the picture, but I like it because it kind, of, it kind of gives you a sense of the transformation of the built environment where you see like the, the courtyards and the compound huts, but at the same time, the wide asphalted roads and the concrete blocks that are, were being gradually taken up um, at the time. Equally significant is the enforcement of building regulations that completely shifted housing patterns towards a reliance on mechanical cooling. One such regulation is the setback requirement, or what is known in Arabic as Qanun al-Irtidat. This regulation requires a particular distance between the front sides and back of the building and the plot boundary. Now, in the past, people built on the entire plot around an inner central courtyard. But with the introduction of the, of the setback, it sort of reversed that structure. And it became very difficult to be able to continue building around like in, in the old ways. And so with that, we see a new housing pattern emerge in the Gulf that we know today as the villa, which is, you know, um, the self-contained house surrounded, surrounded by private grounds and relying primarily on air conditioning rather than on strategies of passive cooling. And so with these changes, we see the beginning of a, of a, we see the beginning of a transition from a built environment that relied on passive cooling or architectural cooling strategies that required zero fossil fuel to a new built environment that not only absorbed heat, but that also and consequently required energy-intensive air conditioning. And the problem with these changes is that they not only lock the region into a reliance on energy, but that they also produce social consequences that many remembered as undesirable. Just to give you one example, in the oral history interviews, many people that I spoke to, especially when they spoke about the rooftop, they spoke about it as a space not only where they slept, but as a space that fostered social connection. Because the entire family would be sleeping in one space, neighbors sometimes would, be, would talk to each other across rooftops, and even if you didn't actively talk to your neighbor, you'd just be simply be able to hear them. So you hear their chit-chat, their movements, what's happening. And um, in one oral history um, interview, um, one man explained that way. We knew which house had a funeral, which house had a wedding. We even sometimes knew what they were having for lunch the next day. It may be too close for comfort, but that was the case um, at the time. With the use of air conditioning, the sense of community started to, to disintegrate, not only because people had to retreat into closed indoors, but many found the operating sound of the air conditioning even more disruptive. And I quote here one woman I interviewed from Manama who explained, when we started using the rooms and the AC was on, you couldn't hear your neighbor. And it wasn't only your AC, but the neighbor also had one. So the whole neighborhood sounded like an AC, like a boom. And this sound took all our stories, chit-chats, and interactions, and buried them in the ground. Today, in the wake of escalating energy concerns, this history of colonial-led urban reforms is being called into question. 
Many Gulf architects, for example, are critiquing the setback requirements for limiting their ability to draw on their own heritage and prioritize low-carbon design. Just to give an example here, in one roundtable discussion that I attended on the setback requirements, all the architects were, the majority of the architects were against the setback requirements. And one of them, to, to prove his point, he shared a story where him and his colleague knowingly violated the setback regulation and recreated the courtyard. And he spoke about it as a success story because they were not only able to create green, green space within the house, but also to enhance the distribution of light and ventilation. Okay, let's see where I reached. Other architects are experimenting with novel designs to show how eliminating setbacks allow them to better integrate building with their buildings with their ecology. For instance, architect Noor Abdel-Majid, who's a Saudi architect based in Bahrain and whom I, I met in a sustainability conference, shared with me her prototype of the sinking house, which uses the Earth's natural cooling capacity by building underground. Abdel-Majid used local weather data and climate analysis to demonstrate that building at deeper levels would significantly enhance the building's thermal performance. She explained, and I quote here, the ground temperature profile at a depth of 7 to 10 meters is a constant 22 degrees Celsius, with Bahrain's rich fabric of underground water channels contributing to the cooler environment. And the thing is about these architectural initiatives, whether they are actually taking place or just a thought experiment, is that they respond both to ecological and social purposes. Abdel-Majid, for example, supplemented her proposal with a social survey with 150 residents, showing that her design, which includes an open courtyard, also ensures local expectations of privacy. Architects and planners, however, play Architects and planners, however, play one role in the story of air conditioning in the Gulf. Equally, if not more important, is how mechanical engineers have reshaped our, our thermal environments. Now, when air conditioning was first used in Bahrain, it was mostly supplied by American engineers who were working in the oil industry at the time and who were consulted by the British for the cooling of buildings. And why in American engineers? Because it was the Americans who first brought AC to the region, given that AC is an American invention and they had the most experience running the machine. And so, Apologies, I keep changing this. Yeah. And so um, they were often consulted for their engineering expertise. Those engineers not only brought with them air conditioning, but also a set of scientific standards that specified human comfort. More specifically, these standards were published by the American Society for Heating, Refrigerated for Heating and Ventilation Engineers, known at the time as ASHRAE. And ASHRAE was the first engineering society to conduct experiments and research with the purpose of standardizing comfort. This is a picture of some of ASHRAE's members, uh, they left in 1927. And as you can tell from the picture, at the time it was a primarily white male enterprise, as uh, you know, a lot of the engineering fields at the time. And for those who are curious, the man on the left is Wallace Carrier. The, if you're familiar with the carrier AC, he's our guy here, and he's known as the, as the father of modern air conditioning. Now, in 1959, Ashley merged with another engineering society to become what is known today as Ashley, which is a society that publishes internationally accepted standards related to, to air conditioning. Currently, there are more than, and, and engineer, I can correct me if, I, if I'm mistaken, there are more than 180 Ashley chapters across the world, and we're pleased to have the president of Ashley UAE here with us. Um, this evening, so thank you for coming. 
In my research, I took a historical and ethnographic look at these comfort standards to understand their role in contributing to the Gulf's reliance on air conditioning. Where do these standards come from? Whose assumptions and points of view do they encode? And in what ways are they allowing or foreclosing the possibility of delivering a more sustainable society in the Gulf? As I've gestured to, experimentation on comfort standardization were first conducted in the early 1920s in the laboratories of Ashford. That was a time when air conditioning was transitioning from an industrial technology that was initially used in factories to enhance production to a comfort technology. And it was also a time of public debate about the, whether air conditioning is healthy or can we even use it as a comfort technology. Funded by the U.S. government as well as the air conditioning industry, the experiment aimed to specify the ideal conditions for human comfort, which would not only promote air conditioning as a viable comfort technology, but would also reduce comfort into a problem that could easily be solved by mathematical calculation. To arrive at this standard, a series of lab experimentations were conducted exclusively on young white male engineers, whose bodies were seen as the normative model from which a comfort standard can be derived. The engineers were asked to perform different activities that simulated labor inside an environmentally controlled chamber, like in the picture. The temperature, humidity, and air flows were then calibrated while the bodies of the subject were attached to measuring devices to assess their physiological responses, such as body temperature, pulse, weight, and breath. So if you want to picture it, the, the engineers were asked to go inside the room, uh, ride a bike or sit at the desk, do different kind of activities while their bodies were attached to devices, and then the engineers who were conducting the experiments would also communicate with them via wire and phone to ask if they're, how they're doing, like if they are comfortable um, or not. Um, the data and the input was then compiled in a statistical chart that delineated the optimum comfort condition, or what was formally introduced in the engineering field in 1925 as the comfort zone chart. And this chart until today is the main reference point for mechanical engineers working in the air conditioning field. Now, I want to also say that since then, the research that underpins the comfort zone um, has undergone a lot of changes, particularly in the, in the 60s. There was um, a new, the, the experiments were replicated, but on a more diverse samples, um, you know, that included men and women from different ages and then also considering factors such as clothing. So there was, it's evolved since then. But the, but, one, but the consequence of the comfort zone is that it created a shift from this idea of comfort as a cultural and social achievement to comfort as a universal and measurable biophysical state. So rather than say people in different cultures have different thermal ex expectations, the comfort zone argues the opposite that people have similar cult, uh, comfort expectation regardless of culture and geographic location. And one way that the comfort zone was able to achieve that is precisely by quantifying comfort and reducing bodies to a set of statistics and measures that eliminates any cultural con consideration. So the body here is treated, you know, almost like a, like a machine, and comfort is reduced to a matter of figures and, and stats instead of also cultural and social differences. Now, the problem with the comfort zone is that it fails to recognize the range of thermal conditions that people have been able to attach to for millennia. Instead, the chart limits these conditions in favor of a universal ideas that was really, at least initially, based on a very small group of people. Today, the comfort zone is codified in ASHRAE Standard 55, which is also entitled Thermal Environmental Condition for Human Comfort, which specified comfort... There we go. 
which specifies comfort in terms of a temperature range of about 22 to 23 to 25 to 26 in the summer with a relative humidity of 30 to 50 percent. So as for ASHRAE 55, these are the optimum comfort conditions that needs to be created in buildings everywhere. Now for a place like the Gulf, the introduction of comfort standards produced powerful consequences, precisely because they made air conditioning a requirement. As for ASHRAE's handbook, climates with a temperature beyond 33.5, which would include the Gulf, are considered, and I quote here, extreme and thus require mechanical cooling. And so embedded in the standard is also this idea that certain climates rest outside the scope of normalcy, that they are inherently uncomfortable and thus require mechanical cooling to bring them within the normalized comfort zone. And so, as, comfort zone, as, the, as the standards arrived with the Americans and were then enforced by the British, we see air conditioning gradually becoming a required technology in buildings. When if you look at the history of the region, people were able to adapt to even higher temperatures without using energy-intensive air conditioning. Now, in the 1970s, the universal comfort zone of ASHRAE 55 came under investigation, but for reasons that have nothing to do with comfort and everything to do with energy. Following the 1973 oil embargo and as the price of energy almost quadrupled, the, constru the construction industry revised, revised many of its standards to make them more energy efficient, including comfort standards. And that's because maintaining a similar temperature across time and space would require significant amount of energy. So let's say if you're saying that the optimum temperature is 23, if you want to maintain that temperature in a hot place, then you need to pump a lot of energy into that building. So at the time, we see a new direction emerge in the engineering literature that advocates for this idea of adaptive instead of universal comfort. So going back, so instead of saying everyone feels the same, saying no, there are actually cultural differences here. The premises of the adaptive approach is that people can have diverse comfort expectations relative to the climates with which they are familiar. Proponents of the adaptive school further argued that the lab-based approach of ASHRAE 55 was re reductive and did not consider how bodies can adapt and achieve their own comfort conditions. Yet, at the time, this research was not accepted by ASHRAE due to claims that it lacked methodological rigor. In the 1990s, however, concerns over global warming renewed the research on adaptive comfort, eventually leading to an ASHRAE-sponsored project that is entitled um, ASHRAE Project 884, and the project involved collecting empirical field data in approximately 21,000 buildings around the world. So for the first time since its introduction in 1925, the comfort zone was going to actually be tested on the ground rather than in the lab. Based on the collected data, the project concluded that the comfort zone can fall outside the range ASHRAE 55 specifies. This research was eventually incorporated in the standards in 2014, which replaced the notion of a universal comfort in favor of an adaptive comfort zone. And I believe, and in, in, in Engineer Amp also can correct me if I'm mistaken, but this data is also open so anybody who's doing research can upload their findings back. And the purpose is we need to move away from this universalizing model to more culturally nuanced one. The problem with such revision is that they exclude hotter climates like the Gulf. So in the Gulf, the universal comfort model remains the default engineering standard. On Zoom, I spoke to one of the researchers who worked on ASHRAE Project 884 to ask him about the reason for this exclusion. The researcher responded that it was simply because they did not have empirical data in for such environments, since none of the buildings they surveyed were set in harsher climates. But in further speaking with him, I realized that there's another implicit reason for excluding spaces like the Gulf from adaptive comfort research. And the argument goes, 
that in places where air conditioning has already become accepted and popular, people have become completely dependent on this technology in, in excessive and inextricable ways. And I quote him here, in places like the Gulf, people spend most of their day in air-conditioned indoors. So they've acclimatized to AC, and that's just resetting their adaptive mechanism to a completely artificial climate, which is insane. That's just, a, that's just staring up the adaptive concept altogether. And this idea, or such ideas about air-conditioning dependencies, are not uncommon, uncommon in the engineering literature, but have in fact gained traction, leading to ideas about air-conditioning addiction. A close observation of everyday life in the Gulf, however, reveals a different story. Through my own fieldwork, and I think many of us also can relate to this, air conditioning often emerged for users as a technology of discomfort. Many dislike the levels of extreme cold, the feel of direct air on the skin, the thermal shocks that bodies go through as they move from cold to hot spaces, the effect of the machine on health. There are people also who explained the emotional or the psychological effect of being, feeling like you're trapped or imprisoned in air-conditioned indoors and making the decision to leave your house and walk, even if it's hot, to feel better. Yet, such experiences are rarely considered in the engineering literature, because it's just, you know, like people are almost addicted to it. And this is not to place the blame, of, the blame on engineers, of course, but rather to point to a larger problem of knowledge and disciplinary divisions that hasn't really been serving us. And I'm speaking in particular here about the disciplinary divide between the physical sciences on the one hand and the social sciences and the humanities. So there are people like me who are doing social and cultural studies on how people are using air conditioning, and then there are the engineers who are doing their own research, and there are little conversations that are happening in between. And that's why I'm also happy to have Engineer Amsley to bridge this gap and see what kind of conversations and, and thoughts it produces and it provokes. Looking at standards alone, however, is not enough to understand the role of engineering in generating air conditioning dependencies. During my research, I spoke with multiple engineers in Bahrain and in some Gulf countries to learn about how they apply ASHRAE 55 in their own work on the ground. And what I learned that in many cases, engineers cool buildings even at lower temperatures than what ASHRAE prescribes. So there's a tendency to overcool an oversized building. And so I wanted to understand why this overcooling takes place. And what I found out is that there are multiple historical, social, and material factors that have nudged engineers to increasingly cool buildings. And while I don't have the space to fully delve into them, I'll share with you some of my findings. And maybe uh, also Engineer Ham could enrich us also in this regard. One thing that's kept resurfacing in conversations with engineers on the reason for overcooling is rule of thumb engineering. Now, in rule of thumb engineering, engineers select the size of air conditioning based on the volume of space without considering factors such as building materials, their thermal resistance, or the, the position of the building vis-a-vis -vis the sun path, which are all factors that, as per professional guidelines, they're required to consider when they're calculating their cooling capacities. As a result, this can lead to issues of overcooling and sometimes undercooling as well. I remember one of the houses I visited when I was doing my fieldwork in Bahrain was uh, the house of an architect who decided to plaster her house using the traditional plaster, which is we also call Noura. So she plastered her house using that. And when she called the engineer to put the AC in the house, they didn't consider it. And so her house ended up being very cold. And most of the time, in half of the AC, she's not even using but this practice of rule of thumb engineering affected the cooling of buildings from the very beginning. So there's a history behind this practice. If you look at the archives, engineers who were contracted to cool buildings in Bahrain relied mostly on building size to decide the cooling capacity or size of their ACs. 
At times, they went as far as manipulating the building's volume, such as by lowering the ceiling, to ensure that air conditioners worked effectively. Part of the reason is that most of the air conditioners, air conditioners that came to Bahrain were portable air conditioners, as opposed, or as we know them as window air conditioners, as opposed to centralized air conditioners which were integrated with the design of buildings. And because portable air conditioners were not integrated within buildings, they offered less environmental control and hence did not warrant rigorous and detailed engineering um, calculation. And so what mostly people did at the time was just look at the size volume and then it carried over um, until today. Today we see this, project, uh, this practice also persists among some engineers who explain that full of some engineering sometimes offer them a quick way of doing things particularly when you're pressing on deadline and don't have the luxury to do too detailed um, analysis, rule of thumb offers a quicker way to do this. Now, in addition to rule of thumb measures, overcooling is also a consequence of the assumption that some engineers care about the end user. Many engineers attributed the success of their work not to their commitment to ASHRAE standards, but rather to their ability to understand local thermal expectations conceptualizing themselves as cultural rather than solely technical actors, some engineers justified their overcooling practices on account of local desires. For example, one engineer who was commissioned to cool one of the malls in Bahrain explained, we designed the mall at about 21 Celsius, but we also put in an allowance, so if there are complaints, I can lower the temperature by 10%. At the end of the day, it's really about knowing my, my audience. Designing for Bahrainis might be different than designing for Europeans, who might find these temperatures actually cold. Another engineer who has been working in Bahrain for 15 years explained, and I quote again, here we'll design at 21 Celsius. That's not required as for ashtray, but if that's what people want, what can we do? But we know this is not proper design. So there's an assumption among engineers that there's a local predilection for low temperatures, that people in the gut like to be cold, not comfortable. Yet the irony is, by acting on the assumption, engineers often create environments that are uncomfortably cold. For example, in the same conversation with the engineers who was working on the mall, he took out his phone to show me the text, his phone, it was full of text messages of people telling him that the mall is cold and complaining if they can adjust it and, and change the temperature. And we can also relate to this idea of, of just being overcooled in spaces here. At least in this building, most of us have jackets and shawls in our offices, simply because it's too cold regardless of temperatures outside. What these experiences demonstrate is far from a desire for cold temperatures, but rather to adapt between engineers' assessment of thermal expectations and occupants' actual comfort levels. And one explanation for this gap is gendered. Now, when engineers conduct their calculations to decide how much cooling a space needs, one of the things they need to consider is the type of clothing that people will wear. Particularly in workplaces, many engineers I spoke to explained that they often cool buildings with a man and a business suit in mind, you know, accommodating male comfort. One engineer, for instance, remarked, and I quote here, people are coming to work wearing a jacket and a cold suit in this weather. How can you sustain this kind of clothing without lowering the temperature, end quote. But that also means that for many, including women, who do not adhere to this professional business suit, the workplace can become quite cold. And that's something that also many women during field work complained about. One, I remember there was one woman who shared with me on WhatsApp a picture of this, which is a heater, a mini heater that she brought and she put under her desk to keep her warm even in the summer, which is a quite ironic practice, you know, given the weather outside. There are also women I remember who said that at the end of the workday, even in the summer, they would drive home with the AC off in, the, in their car simply because they've been freezing for so long um, in the workplace. But in addition to these gendered engineering practices, overcooling can also be the result of engineers' overestimation of what's known as a safety factor, 
Now, a safety factor is an additional cooling percentage that engineers allocate to, alert, to allow for emergency situation, misuse, or machine degradation. Sometimes, the safety percentage is overestimated as a way to avoid dealing with dissatisfied clients. So, when engineers who were who was managing a bank uh, in Bahrain put it that way, the thing is, if you oversize, no one will complain. But when it is hot, then it's a nightmare. And if you ask me which side of the story I'd rather be on, then I'll tell you I'd rather live with oversized air conditioners than with people's complaints. Today, with increased concerns regarding the energy cooling loads in the Gulf, engineers have been emphasizing and cautioning against these practices of overcooling. So in many engineering events that I attended, there was always this one slide that talks about overcooling and you know that it's, it's just not an efficient practice. And so the question that remains here is how can engineers reformulate their practices in a way that takes into account people's actual experiences? And how can the standards that have become conventional engineering wisdom be similarly examined for the purpose of a more sustainable environment? My, point, my purpose in this talk is not to answer this question, but rather to identify windows of intervention where engineers, architects, and occupants alike can work together for a more sustainable built environment. In recent years, new technologies have emerged in the Gulf that promises to be more energy efficient, particularly in the wake of the ecological and energy crisis. District cooling, for example, is promoted as the path forward for Gulf countries, saving 40%, uh, around 40% of energy compared to conventional air conditioning. Similarly, there's also solar air conditioning, which promises to run on renewable or hybrid energy. But the question is, are these technological solutions enough? Or do we also need to critically consider how air conditioning is also embedded in engineering, architectural practices, as, as well as lifestyle and cultural habits? At a time when occupants dislike the thermal environments they inhabit, architects challenge mainstream building designs, and engineers criticize practices of overcooling, we might think of these tension as welcome opportunities to rethink our energy-intensive habits and embark on a transition from energy-driven to sustainable buildings. And I want to conclude in the words of one engineer that I spoke to in Kuwait, who very insightfully noted, and I quote him here, we can only invest so much in enhancing the energy efficiency of air conditioning, but we need to go beyond the machine to break our addiction. And You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.